Welcome to Dead Headspace Spotlights, a mini episode of our regular show, only here. Authors give a brief conversation with Brennan and myself with a reading, and uh, we hit some bullet points on the book that they are reading from. This show is a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today, if you listen to Dead Headspace, even on a fairly regular basis, you know of Ronald Kelly. We talk about him enough. Uh, Ronald Kelly, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. For new listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into your reading? Okay, I'm a lifetime resident of Tennessee. Um, began, I got the writing bug when I was about 16 years old. Um, uh, started writing short stories and, and set my sights to be uh, published. And uh, it took 12 years, but then I finally got published in, in a lot of the horror uh, small press magazines. Uh, um, then uh, sold my first uh, novel to Zebra Books in 1990 and uh, did eight books for them. Um, the Zebra horror line shut down. And then I, I stopped writing for 10 years, and then I came back in 2006, and I've been writing ever since. Very good, sir. And if you want to check out more in-depth uh, breakdowns on Ron McConaughey to horror, his his works in Zebra, just uh, look for one of the full-length episodes. He's on one, two, I think three or four now, um, where it's just him, and then he's got a few where he's a, a guest host. So tell us about the book you're going to – uh, read from today the short story and what's so, <laughs> what's so special about this book why we had to have you on for this well the book is called the essential six stuff um the essential six stuff was uh, sort of a, a dream of mine because there had been thunderstorm books had put out the original six stuff in 2009 and here's the original six stuff it was numbered two of the element the elemental books um so it was a, a collection of seven short stories um some of my splatterpunk stories from way back in the, the early 90s and and so we did that and it was very well received and and i always wanted to, to, do, to do another one so um around 2000 um See, it was uh, 2019, we did more sick stuff. Here's the Thunderstorm edition here. Oh, I love that cover. Yeah, Alex for, McVeigh did the cover. It's, for uh, audio it's, listeners, can you describe the cover, please? Uh, it's uh, Alex McVeigh did this cover, and it's a collage of different images from the different stories in this book. So, um, like, this is the, the thing at the side of the road, and... Um, there's several other stories in here that the images are sort of mashed together in a, a very visceral, uh, disgusting way. <laughs> but uh, that was the that was the more sick stuff. So I, I, all these were were like limited editions, and a lot of people didn't get to read these books because you know uh, they were expensive and and very limited in number. So. You know, I had this idea to do combine these two in a whole new 
collection of stories into the essential six stuff and and I, I pitched it to um, uh, Kim McKinley at Silver Shamrock and he was all for it so so uh, I started putting it together and and then Alex McVeigh you know he, he did the wonderful um, big blue tick cover and the back cover is the belly of the tick <laughs> and uh, so uh, yeah, you know, Alex and I had been talking a long time about doing a, a project where he had quite a bit of artwork inside and out. So, so we started. Um, he uh, did quite a few cool illustrations inside. He did like I believe twenty three illustrations, black and white illustrations throughout the book. So that was another plus for it, and um, so. Uh, it was published and very, very well received, and and um, uh, it came up recommended for a, a Splatter Punk Award and, and actually won the Splatter Punk Award for Best Collection. Uh, so I'm very, very happy about that. Didn't, didn't expect it because there was, there was quite a few collections, you know, wonderful collections up for that award, and, and I'm, I'm just so grateful uh, that I, I won so and it's really neat it's the first year somehow it's it still baffles me this is the first award you've ever won and this is the first award that in the same year that john skip has ever won he got the lifetime uh was it uh, jf gonzalez i think it's named after uh, yeah. award and just real quick this was brandon mine's first uh introduction to your fiction and yeah. ken mckinley before you came on uh before we even heard of you. Uh, he told us, "Hey, basically, you have to. You guys should really look into him." And he told us about you. Said you were used to write for Zebra, and <laughs> Brandon and I took about a second to say, "Yeah, let's have him on." <laughs> it didn't sound, and in Ken's defense, this isn't any kind of insulting way. Um, it didn't sound like you were going to be forming a friendship with us like we were it sounded like it would just be like this guy might give us a shot we don't know and <laughs> i'll speak for brennan on this you become not mine but in brennan's but ken's one of our we formed a very close friendship a group of friends that i never saw coming in a million years and um for potential readers i'm gonna ask brennan just to give us his thoughts real quick and then we'll dive into uh, back to you and that'll be it for our thoughts on uh, this episode, but I found Essential Six stuff to be amazing for the simple fact that I love history, I love horror. It's both of those. It's the history of horror from the early 90s. It starts off with the uh, forward where you tell us exactly why we try, you and the other writers wrote as graphic as you could. It was basically to one up each other, which is hilarious. And yeah. but it, it's not. It still has heart to it, and um, that made me go in saying, "Okay, I I totally get that. I'm I'm in the mindset of that. If I wasn't, I think I would have received it differently um, because you see that all the time nowadays. But it le it ends up to the uh, what's the last story in this? Isn't it that the nipple one? Um, no, I believe it's uh, I don't know it myself. It's a it's a collection of stories from the early '90s to present present time, which is uh, 2021. It's, it's well, I don't even know how to spell 
what Quetzal Cotal's Revenge. What's the nipple one? I forget exactly how to. It's the one before that, I believe. But what's the title? Uh, it, it's well, leaving my oh, mind. The nipples in Dad's two box. Okay, yeah, that's the one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that title alone, you got It's it sounds really funny, but it's a fucked up story. Brennan, uh, what are your thoughts? And then we'll jump back to you, Ron, and uh, take the lead on what you're reading and um, why you picked that short. Go ahead, Brennan. Uh, it's just it's a special collection, you know. Like Patrick said, it just spans decades. Uh, and gives readers just a taste of the history of horror. And I love the fact that it's split into three volumes. Uh, there's something about that uh, element of it. I can't quite put my finger on, but it's it's just this big honking collection. And the way that we almost get these um, layers to it... Um, you know, we uh, speaking for me, I couldn't work my way through this thing fast enough, um, which once you get past the first story, you feel a little dirty saying. But um, <laughs> it's, you know, it it was one of my favorite reads period of 2020, definitely up there with the best collection. And I was, you know, Patrick talked about um, <clears throat> we've you know, we've had you on here so many times because we just love talking to you when I needed, you know, somebody to take a look at my book and write some kind words about it. You were the first name that came to mind when we needed a, a co-host for, you know, for me to talk about that book. You were one of the first names that came to mind. Um, and this is, you know, just a, a, a we love you, man. And we were so thrilled to see you get that nod. And if it had ended there, we would have still been thrilled for you. But to see you get the win, uh, that that was huge. And we're, we're just so pleased for you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate oh. your friendship, too. And I just want to say, point out, Alex McVeigh's artwork, as Ron mentioned throughout it, uh, it also added an extra layer of something that I don't think any other illustrator could have done, specifically for the fact that not only is he very talented, but uh, your friendship with him has spanned over the years since he returned. So yeah. you you certainly can feel that. At least I could. I know Brennan could. And obviously Ken could because he was speaking very highly of it before we even met you. So, uh, yeah, Ron, I just want to echo what Brennan said, too, about the love and friendship thing, man. Like, it, it's it's a special, like you, Brennan, Ken, there's very few others that I can say, in, as Lansdale says, the full-finger friends. That That's life. You got very few full-finger friends in life in general. So it's awesome that you, Ken, and Brennan are in that. Take it away, sir. Bre uh, I mean, Ron. <laughs> Okay, so tonight I'm going to be reading Consumption from the Central Six stuff. Um, let me tell you a little bit about this story. Uh, when I was uh, in my teenage years, maybe 13, 14, we'd hang out with my cousins out down, um, you know, and um, they didn't live on a farm, but they behind them was like stretches of miles and miles of woods. So we would just go you know, wandering through the woods and sometimes we'd find an old bleached cow skull where a cow wandered off into the woods and died and and we found all kinds of cool stuff out there in the woods and everything and 
I remember one summer uh, we were out in the woods and I had I stepped into a sinkhole <laughs> because um, you know the the um, the ground in the woods were covered with kazoo. You know that's that the viney leafy growth that, that you know covers um, the ground and trees and everything in the south and um, we were like knee deep in that kazoo and we couldn't see where we're you know the ground in front of us and i stepped into a sinkhole and went up to my waist so um i got out of it and everything and you know no harm done and all that and so i remember uh, that evening i went home and i felt something in my jeans i mean <laughs> something was wiggling in my pants so um it wasn't in my legs or my jeans either so um I, I I ran to the bathroom and shook my breeches off, and there was a, a centipede about this long. Uh, uh. Had crawled up my pants leg while I was in that sinkhole, so um, that kind of uh, that kind of uh, inspired this story here. So, so I'm I'm putting on my Dollar Tree glasses here. So, <laughs> do y'all have Dollar Trees up there? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. My son likes to get some cars there, uh, you know, toy cars. It's great. Well, my wife's been watching all these Dollar Tree uh, uh, crafting videos, and and <laughs> so she's a regular. Cause I, I believe I'm going to direct deposit my check in the, at the Dollar Tree every day. Every day. <laughs> all right. So, Consumption by Ronald Kelly. Pap Wilson was returning home from a tedious day of digging ginseng down yonder in a backwoods hollow. His spirits were high, and his sack held a good $80 worth of the medicinal root. He was only a hoot and a holler away from the old log cabin his grandfather had built shortly after the Civil War when his foot sank through the dense carpet in the wild kazoo into what he first thought to be a sinkhole hidden from sight. Confound it all, said the old man as a sudden Joe LePayne shot up the length of his right leg. When he attempted to put his boot from the pull his boot from the open on the ground, a sensation of prickly discomfort gripped him as if his foot had fallen asleep. However, his injury proved to be much more serious than that. Red hot needles of agony stitched his flesh in a dozen places, causing him to moan aloud. Pap, you damn fool, he told himself. You've done gone and put your foot in the nest of copperheads. But snakes were far from being the source of his discomfort. With a curse and a mighty heave, Pap extracted his leg from the neat kazoo and landed hard on his backside in a thicket. For a moment, all he could do was sit there and stare dumbly at his foot. Something had a hold of Pap Wilson something he had never seen in the likes of during his 70-odd years in the hills and hollows of Tennessee. Tiny black eyes glared up at him, burning with an emotion that could only be described as intense hunger. What it appeared to be was a very large and stubby caterpillar, the woolly kind that built great transparent nests in the boughs of blooming dogwoods in the heart of springtime. With several disturbing differences separated that creature from any insect that Pap had ever encountered. 
A thick coat of bristles covered the cylindrical body of the ugly thing. The old man poked his back with the end of his walking stick. The cane emerged covered with long quills, five to seven inches in length, each as sharp and barbed at the end as a fish hook. As the pain grew increasingly worse, Pap's intention was reluctantly drawn to the bloody black maul that encircled his lower leg. It worked ravenously. Awful sounds of sucking, tearing, rising from deep within its gullet. The teeth were triangular ivory grazers. They moved along flesh and bone in an odd circular motion, performing irreparable damage, funneling the chewed tissue and gristle into the dark tunnel of its throat. In sudden horror, Pat realized that the mouth had traveled upward a few inches, totally engulfing the swell of his ankle. The thing was eating him. Pap Wilson had always been a proud man. He forever balked at help offered by neighbors or kin and staunchly refused any consideration lest acceptance be interpreted as weakness on his part. But that evening, deep in that wooded hollow, he screamed long and loud for his life and prayed to the good Lord that someone would hear his frantic cries. Someone did. Nate and Johnny, the old man's strapping sons, were in the barn and unhar harnessing a pair of sway-back mules. Their upper bodies were tanned and slick with sweat, for they had spent all day plowing the hillside acreage that bore their meager crop each year. The two brothers looked at one another. That sounded like Pap, said Nate. They ran out of the barn and down the slope of the hollow. They found their father laying in a tangle of briars and bramble, trembling in a palsy of torment, his life's blood flowing freely now. Good God Almighty, gasped Johnny, the younger of the two. The boy stared in disbelief at the thing that pulsed along Pap's right chin. Nate crouched and curiously extended his hand toward it. Don't touch it, son, warned Pap through clenched teeth. The critter's got barbs as sharp as a porcupine's. What the hell is it? Don't rightly know. Put my foot in a sinkhole under the kazoo, and that thing latched onto me with a vengeance. Pap shuddered with another spasm, each more painful than the last. Well, don't just stand there gawking like a couple of idiots. Get me, get me on up to the house. Fashioning their brawny arms into a makeshift chair, they carried their papa up the steep embankment to the ancient log house. Ma, they yelled as they approached the back porch. Come on out here quick. Pap's been bad hurt. Mabel Wilson rushed out of the kitchen door, drying her hands on her apron. Lord have mercy, she cried. What's happened to him? At first, all she could see was her husband's breeches leg saturated with fresh blood. Then she saw the parasite and nearly screamed. Pap reached out and took her hand firmly. Now don't you go getting hysterical on me, old woman, he said evenly, trying to inject an element of calm into his faltering voice. Y'all just get me inside and we'll see about getting this ugly cuss off of me. By the time they carried Pap to his chair at the head of the kitchen table, 
the creature had crept to the bulge of the old man's knee. They tried two things, neither of which showed any positive results. First, they tried pouring hot water on the thing. Mabel had a kettle of water boiling on the wood stove, knowing that her husband enjoyed a mug of tar black coffee after his forays in the forest. Carefully, she tipped the kettle over the writhing body of jagged bristles. All the room was, were silent, watching in nervous anticipation. Mabel and the boys prepared themselves for the shrieking and thrashing of the scalded critter as it dropped away in the grisly side of Pap's leg, flashing bone whittled away to a point like a lead pencil. But the boiling water had no effect. If anything, it only riled the creature. It continued its gnashing and gnawing with renewed vigor. Next, Nate took a carving knife from the kitchen pantry. Careful not to ensnare his hand in the quills, he jabbed at the thing's body, intending to skewer it. But still, their good intentions proved futile. The knife's edge continuously struck a network of hard, interlinked scales, comparable to the chain mail of a knight's armor. Try its head, suggested Johnny. He did. After chiseling for a few moments, the point of the blade broke off with a snap. No good, sighed Nate. The blame thing is as hard as a tortoise shell. What are we going to do now? asked Johnny. He noticed the thing was halfway up his father's thigh, and amazingly enough, its toothy maw was expanding in width, accommodating the circumference of the morsel it was devouring. Pap had no more answers. He merely sat there trembling, tears of rage and agony rolling down his leathery cheeks. Mabel saw her responsibility and took control. Carry your papa into the bedroom and make him comfortable. She followed them into the front room that she and her spouse had shared for over 50 years. After Pap had been laid gently on the big feather bed, Mabel led her sons out into the hallway. Nate, you've got the keys to your papa's truck, don't you? Yes, ma'am. Now listen to me, both of you, she said, trying to calm herself. I want you to drive to town and fetch Doc Hampson. Bring him back here as fast as you can. But that thing on Pap, Nate began to protest, as fast as it's going, there won't be nothing left of him by the time we get back. Don't talk such nonsense, balked Mabel, although her skepticism was half-hearted with dread. Now get going and put on a shirt to both of you. I don't want you roaring into town looking like a couple of naked savages on a rampage. Do you hear me? Yes, ma'am. They dressed hurriedly, and soon the old pickup was heading down the dirt road for town. Mabel? After a moment's hesitation, she went in to see what Pap wanted. Mabel? Pap muttered weakly. His face, once ruddy with good health, now stared up at her with as pale as bacon flour. Mabel, I want you to do me a favor. Of course, she said, but there was weariness in her tone. I want you to fetch me that old shotgun of mine from out of the clo hall closet and load it for me. Whatever for? Mabel exclaimed. Her mind raced, revealing reasons and quickly discarding them. 
She had a cold fear that she knew exactly why Pap wanted the gun. The elderly man avoided looking in her eyes. The pain, Mabel. Oh, dear Lord in heaven, it hurts. His white knuckled hands clutched at the mattress, the nails digging deeper into the bed covers. Mabel, darling, I don't know how much more of this I can stand. Mabel Wilson removed her apron and tenderly wiped the sweat from his pasty brow. She was a God-fearing, church-going woman, and at that moment she knew she must draw on her faith to get them both through this terrible ordeal. I'll not let you die, Pap Wilson, she declared, her own tears spilling freely. Not by your hand or by this, this monster that's got a hold of you. So you refuse to help me? Once again, he was the raw bone mountain man, fearful of nothing and full of piss and vinegar, the man she had wed the summer of her 18th year. Well, if that be the case, then just get the hell out of here. Get out and lock the door behind you. And no matter how badly I scream, woman, don't you come in. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's stared down reluctantly at the quilled parasite. The thing was at the joint of his crotch and thigh now. Blood pouring in torrents, more blood than he had ever seen in a lifetime of hardship. The appetite was what mortified him. Could the thing eat and eat and never gorge itself to capacity? Was its devilish hunger eternal? And who would it start on next once it had its fill of him? Mabel obeyed her husband's demands. Swiftly, she closed the door behind her, locked it shut with the skeleton key. She stood at the front door screen and watched the evening bleed into twilight. She prayed softly, trying to, hard to ignore the awful noises of feeding that sounded from the next room. In the course of a lifetime, one rarely endures the kind of living nightmare that befell the Wilson clan that dreadful day in the wooded hills of East Tennessee. A nightmare so horrendous that it crumbles the very foundation of daylit reality, then pursues the tortured mind relentlessly into the realm of troubled sleep afterwards. When Nate and Johnny returned with Lewis Hampton, M.D., in tow, darkness had fallen. They found their mother sitting in her rocker on the front porch, her face buried mournfully in her wrinkled hands. Her frail body racked with the force of her sobbing. It was horrible, she told them. The screaming. I've never in all my born days heard such awful sounds as those that came from that room. Oh, your poor papa. How he must have suffered. And Lord, forgive me, I did nothing. I sat right here until the screaming finally stopped. Nate felt left Johnny to look after Ma, then accompanied by Doc Hampton, he entered the house. Living so far back in the sticks, the Wilson household, like most of their backwoods neighbors, existed without benefit of, existed without benefit of telephone or electricity. In pitch darkness, Nate fished in the hall closet, found the old Parker 12 gauge, and loaded it. Then flashlight in hand, they unlocked the door and burst in. 
The pale beam was directed at the brass frame bed, as were the twi twin muzzles of the scatter gun, but that there was nothing to fire at. The big feather bed was empty. Nate and Doc stepped closer and examined the spot where Pat Wilson had once laid in agony. The sheets were twisted and soaked through with blood. The only lingering remains of poor Pap appeared in ragged tatters of clothing in the upper plate of his mail-order dentures lying near a chewed and discarded pillow. As for the, paras the parasitic worm, the only traces of its horrible existence were a few barbed quills protruding from the mattress ticking. Where is it? Nate's mind raced in panic. The beam of a flashlight followed a long smudge of fresh blood like the slimy residue of a slug's trail, crossing the hardwood floor toward the open window. Nate caught a glimpse of movement out of the corner of his eye, but too late. He whirled and fired just as the thing disappeared over the sill and into the outer darkness, leaving only a smear of fresh gore and needles along the ledge, a taunt reminder of the horrible act committed therein. Nate Wilson struggled from the clutches of that ghastly dreamscape, realizing that the grist of his nightmare had actually taken place several hours earlier. He hadn't intended on sleeping a week that night. Since shortly after the hour of 10, when the windows of the house had grown dark, Nate had sat in the loft of the barn, gun in hand, watching, waiting for the first sign of that bristly little monster. And the glass... to emerge from the encompassing thicket. He knew that eventually its awful hunger would overcome its fear and would inch its way across the yard in search of an easy entrance. A full moon was out, splashing pale light upon the immediate expanse of the Wilson property. Nate quickly dismissed the moonlit patches. It was the dense shadows in between that worried him. From his vantage point, he had a good chance of spotting the thing. If an elongated shadow started through the grass below, he could easily dispatch it with one well-placed shot, or so he intended before falling asleep. He was fully awake now, his mind alert and instantly suspicious. Better safe than sorry, he told himself. Nate left his nocturnal perch and climbed down the rungs of a hayloft ladder. After all... This wasn't exactly some chicken-hungry fox he was lying in wait for. Moving swiftly, he left the barn and crossed the moonlit yard. He stopped at the long-handled pump near the back porch, set his gun aside, and cranked himself a dipper of cold whale water. Soon he was stepping through the back door. His brother Johnny was fast asleep at the kitchen table, his breathing heavy and his slumber restless. The flashlight sat on the wood stove where Nate had left it. He now took it and started down the inner hallway. He flashed the light through the front bedroom but made no move toward it. The door was locked. The ugly tangled bed soaked bed sheets left untouched since Valcampton's confused departure. Tomorrow, the county sheriff would be out to investigate the incident, but that was unimportant to Nate at the moment. A faint noise from behind the adjacent door set his nerves on edge. He turned 
the knob quietly and stepped inside, sweeping the walls with the beam of the handheld light. He insisted that his mother could sleep in the boys' room that night. She had agreed passively, and he had tucked her in, concerned with her listless mood and the glassy look in her eyes. Perhaps death had broken the old woman's spirit, causing her to withdraw somewhere into her mind, away from the surroundings that might remind her of her husband, and set the horror into motion once again. Nate walked quietly to the bed and directed the light on the fluffy goose-down pillow at the headboard. Ma, he whispered. His mother's pale face stared wide-eyed and unseeing up at him, the muscles of her shallow cheeks twitching grotesquely. Ma, are you all right? Fear crept into the young man. Was she having a fit? Or was she in the throes of a stroke, a delayed reaction to the strain she had been subjected to earlier? Nate's fear changed into the wild thrill of unrestrained terror when he shined his light further downward. The bed sheets were saturated with flesh blood, the lumpy folds shuddering and shaking rhythmically. Whatever it was that moved beneath the gory bed linen, it was not the body of his dear, sweet mother. Swiftly and without hesitation, Nate grabbed the edge of the sheet and pulled it aside. He recoiled a few feet, the light shimmying wildly in his hand. He wanted to scream. Dear Lord in heaven, he wanted to scream with all the abandon of a madman, but he couldn't. He could only stand there and gawk, repulsed and frighteningly fascinated at the sight his eyes were taken in. Somehow the cursed thing had found its way back into the house. Exactly how was beside the point. All Nate knew was that it was here in front of him now, and it had gotten hold of Ma. Why she had not screamed in agony like Pap had was beyond him. Perhaps it had been her state of grief and numbing shock that had kept her from crying out. It didn't really matter now. She was far beyond help. Ma's body was gone. The spiny parasite had consumed her completely, clear up to the wrinkled neck, which was now sucked and chewed at with relentless fervor. Ma's face stared blankly up at her son, the jaw working, as if trying to utter some meaningful words of parting wisdom that would make her hideous death a fraction more tolerable. But no words rose from her open mouth, only a wet gurgle and a ghastly bubble of bloody spittle, a perfectly formed bubble that abruptly burst when, with a great shuddering gulp, the toothy maw of the worm engulfed her head completely. Nate stared at the thing, and it stared back with tiny, cold black eyes. Its prickly body squirmed, bloated to twice its normal size. Instinctively, he brought his right hand up, but it was empty. Suddenly, he remembered the awful thirst that had gripped him during his walk across the backyard. He ran into the hallway screaming, Johnny, the shotgun, I left it out by the pump. Get it, quick. He heard a frantic scramble, the slap of the back door, and soon Johnny was bolting down the hallway, shotgun in hand. What's wrong, he demanded breathlessly. What happened? The awful look in Nate's eyes scared Johnny half to death. It got Ma, 
Knight sobbed, strangling on those dreadful words. The ugly thing got her. He traded his flashlight for the shotgun and turned toward the bedroom, every nerve in his body alive and on fire. Snapping back the twin hammers, he stepped back into the dark room. Johnny followed and directed the light of the flashlight upon the bloody bed. Nate braced himself, peering down the jointed, joined barrels of the antique 12 gauge. The bed was empty. The petite woman who had raised them from infants to hard-working men was completely gone. But worse still, so was the devil that had devoured her. Where is it? cried Johnny. Nate, where is it? Did it get out the window like last time? They both looked to the room's single window. It was closed and latched from the inside. An awful feeling gripped them both. The thing, the caterpillar-like parasite with the ceaseless hunger. It was still in the room somewhere. They stood stone still for a moment, but no sound alerted them to its whereabouts. No dry rasping of long needles grating one against the other. No gnashing of razor-sharp teeth. Only silence and the ragged labor of their own breathing. Let's get out of here, said Nate, grabbing his brother by the arm. What are we going to do, Johnny moaned as Nate herded him into the hallway, then shut the door behind them, locking it and turning, taking the key. His brother's eyes were wild. We're going to burn that sucker out. That's what we're going to do. Johnny was in no position to argue. Meekly, he joined the sibling in an act that some would have termed as pure madness. They first went to the tool shed and toting two five-gallon cans of gasoline, returned to the log house they had lived in since birth. With a desperation that was almost wanton in its execution, the two splashed the outer walls with a flammable liquid, soaking the ancient logs. Nate dug a book of matches from his trouser pockets and igniting the whole thing, pitched it at the dry brush near the eastern wall. By the time Nate and Johnny reached the peach orchard opposite their bedroom window, the old house was reefed in flame. Nate checked the loads in the shotgun and waited for the fire to get good and hot. It didn't take long. The hewn logs and chinking in between burnt like dry tinder, and before five minutes had passed, the structure was totally engulfed. Nate took a firm grip on the gun. His attention was glued to that bedroom window, for that was where the hard thing would attempt to escape. The inner walls of the cabin had ignited now. As the heat rose in intensity, windows began to expand and explode like brittle gunshots. The bedroom window was the third to go. He raised his shotgun, ready to let loose. The ruptured window stared at him like the empty eye socket of some fiery skull, but nothing moved along its seal except tons of flame. Johnny, he called to his brother behind him, do you see it anywhere? No reply. Only the crackling of the fire and the crash of timbers giving way. Nate was reluctant to turn away from the window, but he did so anyway. Johnny, his brother was nowhere to be seen. Nate stared hard into the pitch darkness, his eyes more accustomed to the brilliance of flame than the inky depth of shadow. 
It was noise that alerted him, a soft rustle of wet grass. His eyes focused on motion at the base of a tree. Johnny, is that you? He walked a few steps closer. Yes, it was, it was Johnny. His younger brother lay on the dewy gra ground, his arms flailing frantically, his legs performing the bizarre dance of torment. The flickering glow from the house reached midway into the orchard, shedding light upon the gruesome spectacle at Nate's feet. The thing had got, somehow escaped the fiery barricade unnoticed and it crept up behind them, catching Johnny by surprise. It had a hold of his brother's head and was at work with the zealous craving it had exhibited at the expense of his ma and pa. Nate raised the shotgun and pointed at the pulsating column of the critter's suspended body. If Johnny weren't already dead, he would be soon. There was nothing Nate could do for his brother, nothing but avenge his horrible demise, and Nate intended to take care of that right then and there. The young farmer's eyes shone with a strange emotion that was a mixture of pleasure and agony, of elation and self-destructive rage. He brought the muzzles of the shotgun flush against the bulbous head of the wretched thing and smiled. I got you now, you filthy little bastard. As Nate was about to exact his revenge, he heard a rustling in the leafy branches above his head. But there was no wind that night. Before he could pull the trigger, they began falling out of the trees. Oh, that last line. <laughs> I remember reading that last line the first time I went through that story and just thinking the utter perfection. Yep. Fantastic job, man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. So you you know that Patrick and I, you know, for newer for new Ron Kelly readers, we're very partial to fear. And with this one, uh, it, short story collections are such a great way to get to know an author. So I, I want to see anybody who hasn't had the chance yet pick up Essential Six stuff and get to know Ron Kelly that way. What else can potential readers expect? What's on the horizon? What's coming um, out soon? Okay, well, in October, we got uh, the paperback release of uh, Mr. Glowbones and other Halloween tales. Um, that was originally published by uh, Thunderstorm Books in um, 2009, I think. Maybe it was 2012, I think. Um, so it was a limited edition. Uh, a lot of people didn't get to have a physical, co physical copy of it. It's It's been... Uh, um available in ebook uh, for several years but we're putting out a, a a new paperback version of it and it's going to have 12 pieces of my own artwork in it so so i'm excited about that and and um so it's it's going to be the first time i've ever had a book with my own artwork featured in it um the cover is actually i did paint paint the cover for that book as well so that's a that's a new halloween collection you can look forward to um to go along with last year's uh, the halloween store so and um in um, november uh thunderstorm books will be putting out uh book one of my uh dead the saga of dead eye western horror series uh, um book one is titled uh vampires zombies and mojo men 
So it kicks off a, a five-volume series um, that takes place over several years as as uh, the protagonist, uh, zombie gunfighter Deadeye, and his um, his uh, uh, Mojo Man sidekick Job uh, track um, uh, vampire outlaw and and um, his uh, his minions and uh, a dark witch named Evangeline across the old west. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to to starting on uh, book two pretty soon so um i, I think it's gonna be a wild ride uh, the several of the people who uh, who read it um uh, did preliminary reading and editing on it just really enjoyed it so so i'm, I'm looking forward to other people now uh, after the thunderstorm uh, edition we'll we'll be putting out in paperback and ebook but i can't the, divulge the the publisher at this time but um, but the publisher will be making that announcement uh, at the first of October, I believe. So, and this uh, this episode airs the sixteenth of September, so that'll give us a little uh, two weeks and a day to wait to find out who that publisher is. Which, by the way, we are releasing this sixteenth. The sixteenth, we are recording again with Ron. Uh, the day after with him and and Paul um, who runs Thunderstorm Books so that's going to be an interesting episode where I'm sure we'll talk about Deadeye and a lot of other things mm-hmm. and also listeners the next episode airs the upcoming Monday it's with Catriona Ward it's just myself Brennan uh, could not make it that is the last episode where it's just me doing solo stuff Ron, it's been a pleasure, man. Um, <laughs> we could talk to you for a while, but that would defeat <laughs> the whole point of this being a spotlight episode. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so is there anything that you want to say before we wrap up for the night? I just want to thank everybody for for um, uh, reading my books, and and I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the storytelling and and the Southern Fried Horror and, and um, you know, uh, you can find my stuff on Amazon. You know, uh, you can contact me personally if you'd like signed books because I got plenty of them. Um, so, um, just like to tell everybody I appreciate their support and everything over the years. And read fear, uh, Brennan. Any final thoughts, sir? <laughs> no, I would just say that uh, you know Ron mentioned it, but pre-orders are up for the first book in the Dead Eye series from Thunderstorm, and like with any of their books, that's it's limited. So you want to get on that sooner rather than later. Go check that out. Absolutely. My final thoughts are: Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Brennan. As I said, listeners, Katriana Ward. She has the book. Uh, this is coming out a week before The Last House on Needless Street comes out. It's an excellent book. Stephen King blurbed it. Lots of other big authors have uh, spoke very highly of it. So stay tuned for that. And the next episode we have is with Mark Allen Gunnels, I believe. Or is that with Brianna Morgan? Uh, I can't remember which comes first. But hey, those are the next two episodes. Don't remember the exact order. Your many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us, folks, and have a good one. Hey, don't forget, you make the order. You can literally just say the next one and make it so.